This evening we're going to look at Hebrews 11, and we will begin at verse 5. And Lord willing, we will get to verse 22. As you see, we are going quickly, very slowly through the 11th chapter. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, we thank you that we may approach you through your Son, by the operation of the Spirit. And we thank you that in that approach, there is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We pray, O Lord, that as we examine the witness of these who confessed such a faith, that you will help us to have their eyes of faith as well. We may see Christ even as they did from afar. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now in this chapter, uh, we are proceeding in a redemptive historical fashion, which means that we are considering the vertical possession of the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, that possession by faith coming to the soul by faith, gift of grace. But we're also considering a horizontal anticipation, what one might call a typological anticipation or a Christological or Christocentric anticipation. Now, last week we had the opportunity to talk about Abel in verse 4, and we summarized Abel on the basis of a protological and eschatological relation. The protological would be the horizontal and the eschatological would be the vertical <clears throat> in this redemptive historical sequence. <clears throat> so if you were going to fill in <clears throat> the blanks on your outline there <clears throat> from what you remember from last week, with Abel, we have a protological what, <clears throat> which anticipates an eschatological what. <clears throat> No. What kind of a sacrifice? What did he bring? He brought an animal. What kind of an animal? A ram. A lamb. Good, Charles. He brought the protological lamb. So the protological lamb anticipates the eschatological lamb. Who is the eschatological lamb of God? Jesus Jesus is the eschatological lamb of God. So we can say that Abel rejoiced to see Christ's day. 
And he saw it and was glad, even as he rejoiced to see Christ, the Lamb of God, and he saw him and was glad. So that's the kind of pattern that we see here because he possesses it, possesses it by faith. Behind his lamb is that lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In bringing that lamb, he is typifying and, in fact, embracing. He is laying hold of that last lamb for sinners slain. All right, now that brings us to verse 5 of Hebrews 11. And we need to turn back to Genesis chapter 5 as we consider what the writer of Hebrews says about Enoch. Looking at verses 22 and 24 of Genesis 5, what do you notice about those two verses? Genesis chapter 5. How many times does it say it, Kay? Twice. So, the career of Enoch there in Genesis 5, a very short biography of Enoch, but his career is bracketed by that phrase, Enoch walked with God. All right, now turn back to Genesis 3. Verse 8 for, for a moment. Genesis 3, verse 8. And what do you notice there? God is walking. God is walking in the garden. <clears throat> Now, in order for God to walk in the Garden of Eden, what must he do? Not quite. Not quite. This is the voice of God walking. He eventually will become a man in the person of his son. But what must he do here in... Genesis 3. Or even when he becomes a man, what must he do? He must condescend. condescend. He must come down. Okay? In order to walk in the garden in the cool of the day, he must come down. He must humble himself. All right? Now let's go back to Enoch chapter 5. Enoch walks with God. Why? Fill in the rest of the sentence. No. This is bracketing his life. His earthly life. 
If Enoch walks with God, what did God do in Genesis 3.8? He came down to walk in the garden. So if Enoch walks with God, it's because God walks with Enoch. Which comes first? Enoch walks with God or God walks with Enoch? God walks with Enoch first. That's an act of God's what? Terry? Condescension, Condescension is an act of God's what? Grace. Grace. It's an act of God's grace. So behind God's coming down to walk with Enoch is God's gracious inclination towards Enoch. In other words, Enoch is graciously disposed to God because God disposes himself graciously to Enoch. All right, Enoch walks with God because God first walked with Enoch. God to Enoch is whom? God to Enoch is whom? Emmanuel. Emmanuel. What's Emmanuel mean? God with us. So Enoch is experiencing God in his Emmanuel role, his Emmanuel relationship. Enoch walks with God because God is with him and he is with God. So with Enoch, we have the protological Emmanuel, which anticipates the eschatological Emmanuel. <laughs> See, use the God with him. See, he walks with God. This is God with him. That's Emmanuel language. You see? So, here is the protological anticipation of God with us in its eschatological manifestation or fulfillment when the Son of God becomes Emmanuel, God with us. Enoch is receiving a foretaste and anticipation of that. In fact, he comes into possession of God in that relationship. God with me. He possesses Emmanuel. All right, now, as you look at Genesis 5 and Enoch's biography there, 22 to 24, what's missing What's missing? As you scan this fifth chapter, what do you see in verse 5? Verse 8. Verse 11. Verse 14. Verse 17. Verse 20. Verse 27. Verse 31. What do you find there, Kay? He and he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. A litany of and he died and he died. And we come to Enoch. Not there. It's not there. Some editor forgot to put it in, right? So the redactor made a mistake. 
<clears throat> the form critic who put it in, you see, didn't understand what the rest of the story was about. Hmm. No. Enoch is exempt from the litany of death. Why is he exempt? Because he walked with God? No. Terry? Because God took him. What do you call that? Give me one word for God took him. Not the word I wanted. Resurrection. Not the word I wanted. It is resurrection. No premillennialists out there. Talk about rapture. Rapture. He's raptured. Yes, we Calvinists believe in the rapture, don't we? Believe in the rapture of Enoch. Believe in the rapture of Elijah. We believe in the rapture. We even believe in the rapture of those when Jesus comes again, don't we? We really do believe in a rapture. It's just we don't believe in a premillennial rapture. Okay, so Enoch is raptured. And where is he raptured to? Where'd he go, Audrey? He went to heaven. Okay, now, he goes to heaven in the... Body. In the body. So how can he get into heaven in the body? Something else has to happen. He's raptured right off the earth without dying. But he's going to go into heaven. Can flesh and blood enter the kingdom of heaven? No. 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 So what's going to have to happen to this flesh and blood? It's going to have to be destroyed. No, not, it's not destroyed. What? It's changed. Changed. How? In the twinkling of an eye. In the twinkling of an eye because it's going to be glorified. He's going to be raptured and glorified. So here is Enoch experiencing the future eschatological rapture right in his own life and the future eschatological glorification right in his own life because God takes him and raptures him into his own glory arena, his own glory domain. In other words, the glory of God possesses and transforms Enoch from flesh and blood to glorified flesh and blood. All right, so we shall all be changed in a twinkling of an eye, to quote K, quoting Paul. Enoch already has been changed in a twinkling in an eye when God took him. Enoch's already ahead of us. As Elijah is already ahead of us. And as Jesus is already ahead of us. But Elijah and Enoch were exempted from the litany of the whole human race. A litany that you and I will hear read over us one day. And he died, and she died, and they died. But not Enoch and not Elijah. All right, now, is there an echo of what might have happened to Adam and Eve had they not sinned 
had they walked with God in Genesis 3, 8, as he came down to walk with them. Is there possibly here in Enoch walking with God an intimation of what God would have done to the protological man and the protological woman? And they walked. Not the final destiny of Adam and Eve, nor was it ever intended to be. There was something better than the garden paradise of God. What's that? What's that? Christina, what's that? As heaven itself. It's where God is. Adam and Eve were not where God was face to face. God came down and walked in the cool of the garden. That is true. But that was God's condescension to them. God wanted them to come up to him. He wanted them to come up higher. He wanted them to enjoy face-to-face communion without any creation intervening, without any creational barrier. And so with Enoch's translation here and glorification, we possibly have an intimation or a suggestion of what it would be, would have been had Adam passed the probation. Now, of course, that's an intimation. That's a speculation. That's a suggestion. That's something to think about. But it's not dogmatic. Nonetheless, it is certain that in front of or above Adam and Eve was the same thing that Enoch inherited by faith and possessed by faith. All right, now let's turn back to the end of the Bible. Let's turn back to the epistle of Jude, to Jude verse 14. Jude verse 14. And here is Enoch again. Very interesting at the beginning of the Bible and at the end of the Bible we have Enoch appearing. And Enoch is described there as the seventh from Adam. Now, what's the significance of Enoch being labeled the seventh from Adam? Obviously, it's important to the writer of Jude, to Jude himself, brother of our Lord. Why does he pinpoint this number? And no, it's not because it's a perfect number. Enoch is the seventh from Adam. Christina, were you going to say something? No, There is a sequence. He's talking about a sequence with this seventh number. Yes, because Enoch is the seventh from Adam through whom? Through Abel? Through Abel? Through Seth. Why not Abel, Kay? Yes, he did. Okay. Right. He's the seventh 
from Adam by way of Seth. Well, who's the seventh from Adam by way of Cain? Perry, who's the seventh from Adam by way of Cain? Charles, do you know who the seventh from Adam by way of Cain is? Okay, I, I thought I guess I'd give you a chance. Anybody? Ben? Oh, you don't know Genesis 4 very well. Who's the comparable opposite of Enoch? Back to Genesis 4. Okay, Mary, who is it? Lamech. It is Lamech. Very good. Now, what do you know about Lamech? Well, in Genesis 4, you know, you get all you need to know about Lamech. Verse 23. When Lamech says to his wives, <clears throat> listen to my voice, give heed to my speech. I killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. I killed a boy for bumping me. I cut him down with death and blood because he bumped me. That's how big a man I am. That's how big a shot I am. I took a little kid. I took a little kid and I murdered him just for bumping into me. Don't you dare touch me, says Lamech. And if Cain, if Cain was to be punished seven times, then I get to be punished 70 times seven. Lamech is like one of the Greek titans. I'm Superman. Just let God try to take me out. And so the contrast of the number seven in Jude 14 is to remind us of the contrast between these two lines that are emerging from Adam and Eve's progeny. The line of Adam by way of Seth that results in Enoch who walks with God and is raptured into glory, glorification, and the seventh from Adam by way of Cain, Cain driven from before the face of God, east of Eden into the land of Nod, the land of oblivion. Cain and his descendants who come to their climax in Lamech and the taunt song of a titan, a depraved, abandoned titan. And those two lines will continue to emerge. They will continue to separate the seed of the woman through the line of Seth and Enoch, the seed of the serpent, to the line of Cain and Lamech until we have Genesis 6 and the sons of God and the daughters of men intermarrying and the world becoming evil and only evil and only evil continually. And who are those sons of God and daughters of men? 
Oh, there the angels come down, have intercourse with women, with uh, with women. That's what it is. We have these super race. Uh, are angels sexual beings? They are not. That is correct. So these aren't angels. But all the liberals say they are because all the liberals believe that this isn't really history. This is mythology. So you have to be aware of that interpretation when you read your commentaries. Now, it's quite simple. What we have here is the sons of God. That's the line of Adam by way of Seth. And the daughters of men. That's the line of Adam by way of Cain. And now, these two lines which should have been separated because one's the seed of the woman and one is the seed of the serpent, they should have been distinguishing themselves. They come together in marriage and then they decide that they're going to be titans and supermen and Nephilim and giants on the earth. And their thoughts and intentions of their heart are evil and only evil continually. And God says... I repent that I have made man, and I will wipe him off on the face of the earth. I will destroy these titans. I will destroy this whole generation that has mingled and intermixed and corrupted the seed of the woman with the seed of the serpent. Well, as a minute, we will see, save for one, who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. All right, but back to Enoch in Jude 14. Enoch here is doing something. What does Jude say he's doing? Cheryl, what does Jude say he's doing? He's coming thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Now what's Jude doing? He's saying the Lord is coming. What's he doing? Robert, what's Jude doing? What's Enoch doing? I'm sorry. What's Enoch doing? Well, he was what's it say he's doing? What's it say he's doing? The verse tells you. What's it say he's doing? He's prophesying. He's prophesying. Jude is prophesying. What's he prophesying? That the Lord is coming to do what? Verse 15. <coughs> to judge everyone. To judge. This is a prophecy of the coming of God in judgment. So Enoch is a prophet. We could say that Enoch is a protological prophet. Now turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Sounds like exactly what Enoch prophesied. Only this time, it's being prophesied by whom? It's Jesus. By Christ. The protological prophet, the eschatological prophet, the protological prophet of the final judgment, and the eschatological prophet of the final judgment. 
Here is Enoch possessing by the gift of prophecy the very same foretelling and insight that Jesus himself gives in the gospel. And so Enoch is folded down into the mystery of Christ once again in his prophetic role. Now that passage that Jude cites is not known in any other place of the Bible is coming from him, though there is a passage in the book of Deuteronomy which is similar to it, though it is not exactly like it. And so, of course, that expression in Jude 14 and 15 is highly debated, particularly amongst liberal scholars, as apocryphal. No, it's not apocryphal. It is inspired. We now know what Enoch prophesied because Jude tells us what Enoch prophesied. Because God told Enoch what to prophesy and Jude records it for us. Even though it's not recorded in any other place of scripture, it is recorded there. It's in the book. And since it's in the B-I-B-L-E, that's good enough for me. All right. Let's ask then the question about the eschatological aspect of Enoch's fates. He possesses the substance of things hoped for, for he possesses Emmanuel himself. And he possesses the evidence of the not yet seen rapture and glorification of the saints of the Most High God. In that day, when God will come with 10,000 of his saints and judge righteous judgment against all the ungodly for all their ungodly deeds. That day will be the consummate glorification of all of those who have faith like the eschatological faith of Enoch. Enoch rejoiced to see Christ's day. Enoch rejoiced to see Emmanuel's day, and he saw it. And he was glad. In fact, he was raptured and glorified. So glad was God to have him before his face. Any questions about any of that? Come then to Noah. Okay, we're going to use our protological, eschatological paradigm once again. What do we have in Noah? The protological what? What's Noah going through? What's God doing to the world in Noah's day? Judgment. He's going through a flood judgment, correct? He's experiencing a flood judgment of what? H2O. (laughs) A flood judgment by water. Okay? Protological flood judgment by water. What's the eschatological? 
Yes, a flood judgment by fire. What text, uh, Robert? I would. It's a Bible study. <laughs> ben? Uh, it's in Peter. What chapter? What, which epistle? Uh, first Peter chapter 3. No. Uh, second Peter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. Said <laughs> that was Second Peter, you see. Yeah, Second Peter chapter 3 <clears throat> talks about the eschatological flood judgment by fire. Notice the similarity there, the flood judgment by water and the flood judgment by fire. Now, let's consider these antediluvians. What's that word antediluvian mean? Before the flood. Before the, flood. the deluge <laughs> is the flood. In Genesis 5 which is a genealogical list that we already looked at, particularly when we looked at Enoch. If you count up the names that are there, the names of those persons in Genesis 5 amount to 10. Now, the the post-Diluvians, meaning those that come after the flood, their genealogy is in Genesis 11, verses 10 to 32. How many names do you have there? Guess. It's exactly symmetrical. There are ten antediluvian generations in Genesis 5. There are ten post-diluvian generations in Genesis 11, 10 to 32. And in between, sandwiched between, the anti- and post-diluvian generations is the story of Noah. So the sandwich is important here because the structure of Genesis 5 through 11 has been particularly laid out to put these post and anti-diluvian, these anti and post-diluvian generations in the frame around the career and the narrative of Noah. All right, so we're dealing with flood imagery, and let's turn back to Genesis chapter 7. Looking at verse 19, Genesis 7, verse 19. And what do you note there? Terry? With what? With water. With water. All right, the waters are covering the whole earth, the whole globe. All right, back to Genesis 1, verse 2. What do you note there? It was before the land emerged. Called? The whole globe was covered by water. What do we have going on then in Genesis 7? New creation. I return to the former state. It's an uncreation. It's a return to formless and void with the waters covering face of the deep. So it's a complete reversal of the creation. All right, let's go back to Genesis 7, verse 23. What is the order? with which God blots out every living thing. 
What is the order in Genesis 7.23? What's the first thing listed there? Christina, do you have it? What's the first thing listed there? As far as what he blots out. Living things. Every living thing. Now let's go. Let's go to something specific. Man. Man is first. What's second? Animals. Animals and creeping things are second. We'll put those two together. What's third? Birds. Birds of the sky. Okay, there's your order. Filling your outline. Genesis 7:23. Man, animals, creeping things, and birds. Back to Genesis 1. What does God make in verse 20? Living creatures. Specifically what? Birds. The birds. What does he do in Genesis 24? Genesis 1, 24? Let the land produce living creatures according to their calling. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals. Animals and creeping things in 124. Finally, what does he do in 27? Verse 27 of chapter 1. Man. Man. What's going on? Did you write them down? Did you write them down? What's going on, Kay? It's exactly the opposite. It's exactly the opposite. It's the exact reverse paradigm. In Genesis 7, it's the exact reverse of Genesis 1. Why? Because, once again, God is undoing the creating creation. He's reversing the creation. And so that the sequence in the text is intended to underscore the fact that God is completely turning creation unto, it, unto its reverse, unto what it was in the beginning. All right, so the text emphasizes the undoing of the created order. So the pattern that emerges then is that the original creation is reversed by the uncreation in order that a new creation will emerge. <clears throat> Noah floats above a world without creatures, without man, without birds, and without sin. God's purpose? To decreate the creation that he had made and then to recreate it anew. But what about Noah? Genesis 6, verse 8. And does anybody have a King James? You have a new King James? All right, go ahead and read it, Lisa. Let's see, let's see what it says. Yeah, the new King James is as good as the old King James on that point. The new King James is not always so very good, but nonetheless, it is good on that point. But none of the other modern versions have this word that the King James translates grace. In fact, it should be translated grace. They usually translate it favor. But it is the Hebrew word for grace. And so it's, the King James is once again better here than the modern versions. <clears throat> Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How could that happen? 
I guess he earned it. No. He screwed up his merits. Not that I'm aware of. Well, we're not even talking about going to heaven. We're talking about him living on the earth and getting the grace of God, right? So, you're saying it's not by his merits. Maybe it's because you've heard the Bill Cosby, Noah, Bill, and the Ark routine. Maybe it's because 120 years of tuba, tuba, tuba. And how long can you tread water? <clears throat> It's a great cameo. It really is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kick, but it, 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 gets you to, it gets you to feel what Noah was actually going through. <clears throat> if you never heard it, you ought to go on the Internet and, and dial it up just, just to listen to it. It really is. It's a great, it's a great piece of humor. <clears throat> you're allowed to laugh. I mean, you're even allowed to laugh about stories in the Bible, and Cosby makes you laugh about that one. <clears throat> And after that one, then of course you want to hear him do Chicken Heart. That's another one. But we'll, we'll get we'll, we'll stick with the Bible stories. <laughs> Anyhow, he really is a gifted comedian when he's not foul mouthed. <laughs> okay, um, now Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. Why? How? How does this work? So, you see, it's by his works. See, Ben says it's by his work. He's a faith, but it's by his faith, so he gets God's grace by his faith. Right? I believe in God. I got God's grace. I believe in you, God. You owe me grace. Deliver. He obeyed God. So it's even more by his works. It's by what he did in obedience. He's righteous, so he earned it by being righteous. Right? Right. Thank you, Roman Catholics. Grace. grace is our unmerited, is unmerited favor. So how does he find grace in the eyes of the Lord? Because God did it. Because God did what? Chose him. God did chose him in, in what? In grace. In grace. There, 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 there. If he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, because God first acted with grace towards him, right? So if he's a man of faith, which came first, the faith or the grace? It's the grace that came first. If he's a man of righteousness, which came first, the righteousness or the grace? The grace. The grace came first. You are Protestants, right? You got your doctrine straight, right? That is orthodoxy, right? I hope so. Praise God for his grace. Noah was. Because Noah, if left to himself... Is just like this generation that is only evil and only evil continually. He's no different than anyone else whose disposition is sinful. You and I are no different than anyone else whose disposition is sinful. The only difference is what God first does, which means... That when we read this verse, we don't conclude that somehow Noah did something to earn the grace of God. We don't read the Bible that way. When we see this verse, we understand that if Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, God's eye was first graciously disposed. 
to Noah. All right. Now, the world in Noah's day is facing the last judgment. Every one of those men, women, and babies, every one of them faced the last judgment. And every one of those men, women, and babies outside of that ark faced the last judgment of destruction and death, shut out of the grace of God. That's a sobering thought, but it's also a sobering thought to realize how many categories of human beings were destroyed by that flood and shut out of the ark. Not just adult men and adult women, not just teenage men, boys and teenage girls, but infant boys and baby girls. God wiped them off the face of the earth with a judgment of destruction and death. Now, Noah, in going through this shall we say, provisional or semi-eschatological final judgment is delivered from that death and destruction by God's grace. God's grace saves him from that provisional cosmic final judgment. So what we have here is a provisional cosmic deluge which precedes a consummate cosmic deluge. We have a provisional cosmic deluge by water which antecedes or comes before a consummate cosmic deluge by fire. And the rainbow pledge that God sets in the heavens, the rainbow promise is that God will never again provisionally bring a cosmic deluge. He never will do it again. The rainbow tells you that that semi-eschatological or provisional cosmic final judgment is past. It's over. It's completed. It will never be repeated. The rainbow is his testimony that he will never again cosmically destroy the world in a final judgment by water. So the created order has already been judged time past. It's already been washed and purged time past. It will never be washed and purged again time future. Never. God's rainbow tells you he will never do it. Therefore, the only remaining thing 
is a created order to be dissolved or melted in a fervent heat. That is the only cosmic judgment which is outstanding. The future for this heaven and this earth once past, once purged time past, the future is a purge by fire and annihilation. Noah experienced a semi-eschatological cosmic final judgment with the earth purged and renewed. But Christ's return will bring the experience of a consummate eschatological cosmic final judgment with the earth burned and annihilated or dissolved in a fervent heat. The uncreation of Noah's day brings a provisional recreation of a new heaven and a new earth. But the uncreation of the day of the Lord Jesus Christ will be a consummate uncreation of the entire created order, annihilated and dissolved, so that the glory order may be all and in all. The glory order, new heaven and new earth are the consummation. Are the new heavens and new earth of the glory arena. The glory arena of heaven, of the world of God's eternal glory. The glory arena of the resurrection body of our Lord Jesus Christ, even this instant now. Because that's where his body is. It is in that arena right now. And that's where Enoch's body is right now. And that's where Elijah's body is right now. And Elijah and Elijah and Jesus' body have been in that arena ever since they were glorified into that glory arena. So that the consummate judgment of the created order by fire as opposed to the provisional judgment by water is a judgment of dissolution. So that what cannot be dissolved will remain unscorched, unsinged, unannihilated because that undissolvable order is eternal in the heavens where the indissoluble life of the Son of God risen in the body, Hebrews 7.16, Hebrews 7.16, where the indissoluble life of the Son of God risen in the body abides forever and ever and ever. Noah receives... Grace from God receives the gift of salvation from the flood of cosmic judgment, receives the gift of grace of Christ Jesus from afar off, spared from protological judgment as all the sons and daughters of grace are spared from eschatological judgment in Christ 
Jesus, the fountain of all God's grace. Noah rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. For the eschatological aspect of Noah's faith is that he possesses the substance of hoped-for salvation from cosmic judgment now and the evidence of salvation from cosmic judgment not yet. All this by grace through faith as he possessed Christ who bore the cosmic judgment that he deserved in his place and shut the door of the ark and sequestered Noah inside. The hand of God shut that door and sequestered Noah inside. Any questions or comments? Anything on the outline that you have any questions about or need, want, want me to tell you what the right answer is? Over here? Yes. Um, am I to understand the earth was, during the flood, everything on the earth was destroyed? Everything. But all, all living animals, all living forms of life were destroyed. But when Christ comes again, even the earth is going to be destroyed. Am I understanding that? Yes, because my understanding of Second Peter 3 is the fervent heat annihilates the created cosmos. So in other words, he's starting totally all over again. No, he's moving to the, the arena that he, has had in, that he has inhabited from all eternity, the arena into which he has ushered the resurrected and glorified. Sorry, the glorified body of Enoch, Elijah, and the risen and glorified body of the Lord Jesus. This, this order will be removed in order that that order which abides and remains may, may, may remain, may stay. Scott? Um, when it says that he condemned the world and therefore received the righteousness that is by faith, I... I um, assuming with you that uh, that all of this passage is talking about laying hold of the eschatological uh, life to come by faith, is there? Do you see a subordinate aspect of anything that has some similarities to Paul's doctrine of justification, which Noah received in condemning the world and receiving the righteousness by faith with? Strong eschatological overtones is the primary thing here. Yeah, I you think see a different, slightly different nuance there. I, I think, I think what the antithesis is there between condemnation and righteousness is an antithesis which has eschatological overtones, not so much Pauline as, shall we say, um, provisionally eschatological in uh, in, in reception or experience. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, this is a more profound aspect of what righteousness by justification would entail. And I don't mean to minimize uh, Paul's antithesis in Romans 5, 
But I think what he's doing is going further than that. Righteousness has now been caught up into a whole whole uh, redemptive historical eschatological and protological tandem, which makes it far richer. <clears throat> Paul wouldn't have objected if he'd sat down and talked to him about it. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but the Holy Spirit has given to the writer of Hebrews an aspect of, the, uh, of, <clears throat> of faith in its drama, which Paul doesn't focus on. So it's more... It is the forensic, but it's more than the forensic. You see, it's not the forensic in and of itself. It's the forensic eschatologized. So even more so than Paul. Even more so than Paul, I say. Because it becomes a possession. Not just a declaration. See, Paul's not going to object to that. But you see, his emphasis is upon this declarative aspect. That makes sense? Yeah. Or at least it's, it's, at least it it's something that you want. Yeah. Okay. It, it makes sense that he's doing something more with it, but it's it's still not completely outside the category. It's not unrelated entirely to the category Paul's dealing with. No, it's not. It's not. But it's deeper than that, in my opinion. And the reason that I, I take this tack is not only because of verse 1, but because I'm fed up with people using this chapter to, use, to, to preach Paul's doctrine of justification and forensic justification. It's not what he's doing here. You have to understand the definition in the first verse. That's what he's doing here. You can't pervert. You can't prostitute this thing to your agenda of preaching the Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone in forensic term, terms out of Hebrews 11.7. You can't do it. It's not there. In my opinion. If I get a little hot about it, because I get tired of listening to these guys look for texts for pretexts. You know, I want to have a Reformation Day sermon, so I'm going to use Hebrews 11.7. Uh, when you spoke about Enoch walked with God and Adam walked with God, is it, would you say those things were synonymous? Because Adam was before the fall, Enoch was after the fall. Uh, it's fall not, and Adam did not need faith. No, you're right. But Enoch, <laughs> Enoch is a fallen being. So they're not synonymous in that sense. Obviously, Enoch, in walking with God, has to be forgiven by God as he walks with Enoch. In other words, the personal relationship between God and Enoch is a personal relationship of, of one who's been forgiven by a forgiving God because he is born outside the garden, conceived in sin. So that walk of Enoch was a walk by faith rather than actual physical walk like Adam would have. I think he actually physically walked with God in the sense of God's presence was walking with him. But it's after the fact of his being, you know, we would say justified by faith, his being regenerated, being born again, but grace transforming his life, which gives him the gift of faith, etc. Because his sin has been, his sin's been removed as a barrier between him and God. Otherwise, God couldn't walk with him. So they're synonymous in the sense that God comes down to walk with both. Okay. They're not synonymous. They're discontinuous in the sense that God walks with a sinless Adam in the garden until he sins, and then he banishes him from it. And Enoch can't walk with God in that sense. Yes. Yes. After after regeneration, after being transformed, after their sins being, after the barrier being removed. Yes. <clears throat> But a good point to, to remind us that everybody in Genesis 5, Enoch included, 
even though he didn't die, even though he didn't receive the wages of death, he deserved the wages of death, and the only reason he's exempt from it is because God graciously walks with him and raptures him. Break down. Now, the paradigm ought to be fairly easy for you by now with respect to the blank, protological blank and eschatological blank with respect to Abraham. What would you use to, what word would you use to fill in the blank? He is the protological Hebrew. My argument has been that the title of this epistle, Epistle to the Hebrews, is an epistle to the pilgrims of the end of the age, even as Abraham is the first pilgrim of the former age. So the protological pilgrim is embracing the eschatological pilgrim, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. Now, there is a structural pattern to observe here in uh, this 11th chapter of Hebrews because you'll notice between verse 8 and verse 17 a symmetrical or parallel uh, anaphora or expression. Both 11.8 begins by faith Abraham and 17 begins by faith Abraham. Now, that first unit that begins by faith, Abraham, in verse 8, ends in verse 12. And then in verse 13 and verse 16, we have, between verse 13 and verse 16, we have another structural frame or structural bracket. I'll comment on that in a moment. But in verse 17, we now have the by faith Abraham, which extends to verse 19 when it's broken with verse 20 by faith Isaac. All right, what's my point here? My point is that the narrator has structured this section from verses 8 to 12 to describe Abraham's career or his narrative from Ur of the Chaldees to Canaan. Then in verses 17 to 19, he once again repeats the same anaphora or introductory formula by faith, Abraham. And he describes the career of Abraham from Beersheba to Moriah. Now, the whole career of Abraham is not covered, of course. He has selected the portions which bring him out of Ur to the promised land or to Canaan. And then he takes him from Beersheba, where the journey to Moriah begins with Isaac and concludes with what occurred on Moriah. And from Moriah, Abraham returned to Beersheba. 
in between verses 13 to 16. Verses 13 to 16 are, in fact, a hinge. They are a hinge which hangs together or ties together not only the separate sections, the two sections of the Abraham narrative, 8 to 12 and 17 to 19, but they tie together the sections of all of the pilgrims of this chapter. In other words, verses 13 to 16 are retrospective, looking back to Noah, Enoch, and Abel. And verses 13 to 16 are prospective because they are looking forward to Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, etc., all the way to the prophets in verse 32. All of the eschatological pilgrims, all of those who possess the eschatological aspect or gift of faith. All right, so the pilgrim motif, which we have seen developed before in this epistle, is being developed in, uh, in spades in this chapter. And it is framed antithetically in section, in verses 13 to 16. This is an antithetical section. Verse 13 is antithetical to verse 16. What do you see there in verse 13, which is antithetical to what you see in verse 16? Where are these strangers and exiles in verse 13? On the earth. earth. Where are they in verse 16? In heaven. In heaven. There is the antithesis. This is the antithetical paradigm, which contrasts those on the earth or in earth and those in heaven. All right, now notice how the section proceeds from 13 to 16. Notice how it unfolds itself. The writer, once again, we've noticed his brilliance before, but here he begins by noting that on earth they are strangers and exiles. In verse 14, they are seeking a country. Better translation of the Greek word is they're seeking a homeland. They're seeking a homeland of their own. Because they are not at home in this homeland of the earth. If they were, they would have gone back to the homelands from which they came. But they do not. Because, verse 15, they desire, I'm sorry, verse 16, they desire a better country or a better homeland understood. But what's missing? Before we get to heaven, what's missing? What came after being, or what was preceding the in the earth phrase? The phrase strangers and exiles. In verse 16, no phrase strangers and exiles. Why is it absent? Why is there no phrase parallel to strangers and exiles? There's a phrase parallel to seeking a homeland in verse 14, and that's they desire a better homeland in verse 16. And sandwiched in between those two phrases, seeking a homeland and desiring a better homeland, is verse 15, they had would not have gone back to their previous homeland. 
So everything is lined up symmetrically here except for strangers and exiles in verse 16. Why doesn't he put strangers and exiles in verse 16? Because they're in heaven, exactly, Kay. They are not pilgrims and sojourners anymore. Very good. They have come to the settled place. And notice the rest of verse 16. They have come to a settled place, which is a city place, which is God's place, and God, their God's place. Interesting that he duplicates the word God in this verse. In fact, he puts the two names of God underneath one another in this verse as if to doubly reinforce and emphatically underscore that God's place, their God's place, is their place. No strangers and exiles on the earth because theos is their theos. God is their God. And in that place where he abides, they abide with their God. All right, now, this little section, 13 to 16, applies to all sojourners, all pilgrims possessing the eschatological aspect of faith. All the personalities of faith in this chapter are tied into this little four-verse section. It is as if he has placed this little unit inside the sequence of the history of redemption, which he is unfolding from the creation to the end of the Old Testament prophets, as if he's placed this little unit here as an exegetical declaration of what belongs to every pilgrim. In the whole Old Testament history of redemption, with an invitation to his reader, with an invitation to you to join them in the possession of the substantial evidence of heaven they hope for, seen to the eye of their faith as you possess by faith the substantial person who is the center of that heavenly city, the Son of God whom they possessed by faith, even afar off. Now, this unfolding progress of the history of redemption, which we are in the midst of here in this 11th chapter, draws together the sequence of the history of the human race from Adam to Abraham. All mankind in the protological Adam have now been reduced to one man, Abram. That doesn't mean there's only one man on the earth, but all mankind in that protological Adam have been by way of the seed of the woman reduced to one man, Abram. That that one man, Abram, will by his seed produce the eschatological Adam and all fill in the blank. All what mankind? Come on, you Calvinists. All elect mankind in that eschatological Adam. The narrowing then of the broad pattern of the universality of Adam 
and his seed now has come down to one man and his seed. One man and his seed. And out of that one man's seed, that pattern will then expand to include Christ and his seed, which is the seed of Abraham from all the nations, believers from all the nations. The universalistic to the singular and from the singular to the universalistic in terms of Abraham as the funnel by which the transition from the narrowing of the history of redemption becomes an expansion of it. Abraham is a hinge point for the pilgrim sojourn of the seed of the woman who will become a blessing to the world, Jew and Gentile alike. Now, what unfolds in Abraham's career? Or how does Abraham's career unfold? It unfolds by the supernatural intervention of God. How? How does the supernatural intervention of God unfold in the life of Abraham? Okay? By giving him a child when it was impossible. When it was impossible, yes. By giving him a child. What was the state of Sarah's womb? Dead. What does God do? What does the supernatural act of God do? It was urgent to save. Makes it alive. Makes it alive. Makes it alive. He brings life out of the dead, doesn't he? Yes. So, out of this dead womb, God brings life. Life from the dead. Romans 4, 17 and 19. Here in Hebrews 11, verses 11 and 12. The allusion there to uh, verse 12, and him as good as dead. Because Abraham was as good as dead too. His reproductive system was as good as dead too. What's the other supernatural intervention? Of God in Abraham's life. He was to sacrifice Isaac, his son, and he was ready to do the sacrifice, and a ram, a ram was made available for the sacrifice. Why would he be ready to kill his son? Ben, why would he be ready to kill his son? He obeys God. It's just brutal. But why does he obey God? Terry? Because he believed God would raise his son from death. That's what the passage tells you, doesn't it? That's what Hebrews 11 tells you. It wasn't that he really believed God as much as he believed God would raise a dead body. If I kill him, God will make him alive. He'd already had that lesson, so to speak, hadn't he? He'd already had life from a dead womb. He'd already had a son whom he shouldn't have had, a live son from a dead womb, and now a live son from a dead corpse. 
Why? Why? Why does he think that way? Okay, why does he think that way? Well, he believed what, everything that God had said to him. And what did God say? That there would, a seed would come from him. And it wasn't just Isaac. He knew it was more than Isaac. That's true, but at least it's Isaac, right? Yes. So if I kill Isaac and he said that the seed of this son of mine is going to become a blessing to all the world, then what's the only other, other answer to the question? What's the other question to the, uh, answer to the problem? <laughs> I kill God only <laughs> Because God said. He's the one that's the promised seed. And through him, the promised seed is going to continue to go to the nations. And if he tells me to kill him, then he'll raise him up from the dead. He'll, he'll raise him from the dead. Now, Soren Kierkegaard writes his very famous book called Fear and Trembling, when he has you quaking and wondering whether Abraham's going through an anxiety attack on his way up to Moriah. No, no. Existentialists always have angst hanging out over everything. Abraham isn't having an anxiety attack. Let's take a look at Genesis 22. Turn back to Genesis 22 and the trip to Moriah's Mount. Verse 5. Abraham says to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and a lad will go yonder. And? We will worship and then we'll come back. And we will return. He hasn't even gone up the mountain yet. He even hasn't even raised the knife over Isaac yet. He hasn't even tied him up with the cords and laid him up on the wood. He hasn't even taken the censer of fire with him yet. He says, we will return. Does Abraham go up that mountain with fear and trembling? He goes up that mountain with perfect confidence. He knows he's going to return with his son. Because God can't deny himself. God has promised. Now it is true that that faith of Abraham puts us to shame. That is true. But that faith of Abraham is the very same faith that you have in measure. Because he possessed the resurrection of the dead ahead of time. And so do you. Because you know the risen seed of Abraham. All right, now, there's one other paradigm we want to note here. Not only is Abraham a protological pilgrim, but he's a protological father of an only son. And that tandem results in an eschatological father and his only son. 
that protological father experiences the substitution of life for the death of his son. His son spared the knife and the flame of that Holocaust altar. But the father of that eschatological son experiences no substitution for his son's death in life. His son's death in the life of his sons and daughters. For this only son endures the knife and the flame of the wood of a cross and the death and wrath of his father consumes him in a holocaust of the spirit. The seed of that protological son on Moriah's Mount gives us this eschatological son on Calvary's Mount. And where was Calvary? On Moriah's Mount. This protological son whose life in death is resurrection is not a type, but in reality, that eschatological son is life in resurrection, out of death. And resurrection life for the nations, resurrection life for Jew and Gentile alike, resurrection life for all the sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac who believe, whose faith possesses the substance of this long-expected son of Abraham, whose faith possesses the evidence of this unseen substituting sacrifice, the eschatological son of the eschatological father, and life, not death, in him, in that son, life, not death, forever and ever and ever. Abraham rejoiced to see my day, Jesus said. And he saw it and was glad. John eight fifty six. Which brings us to the middle patriarch. The middle patriarch of the three threesome Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, like the middle child syndrome. Isaac lost between his dramatic father and his duplicitous son. Isaac's career squeezed between the protological patriarch and the impious, if not perverse, trickster. And yet, on Moriah's Mount, he had experienced his destiny, undergone a life and death substitution. Could anything ever be the same again after a ram took his place in blood and fire 
on an altar built by his father, his beloved father for his son, his only son. Could anything ever be the same again? Even the blindness of his old age, even the blindness of his old age could not dim the memory of a knife raised above his throat and a voice out of heaven staying the descent of sudden and piercing bloody death. Nor could Isaac ever forget the loosing of the cords that bound him fast to the wood on the altar and his father's arms, his father's beloved arms, taking him from off of that wood on that altar and the fire, yes, that fire consuming another. The blessing Isaac pronounces is the benediction of a son of the father as good as dead, yet reborn from the dead. It is a benediction of yet more life, the same life, the life before the face of God who raises the dead. Even these blind eyes see that cascading blessing folding in the beloved of the Lord. Jacob have I loved. But these blind eyes would not see that son beloved of God, elect of God for many, many years. Tricking his father, the trickster son, is tricked by his uncle. What goes around does come around. And Jacob returns to his father, new-named Israel. Isaac, the protological bestower of benediction, points to the eschatological bestower of benediction. The protological blesser anticipates the eschatological blesser. And this middle patriarch, he sits in the middle, Isaac seated in between Abraham and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 8, 11, at heaven's banquet table with the eschatological son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the head of the table, Isaac's eye dimmed no more, and his own beloved father and now beloved son sandwich him, sandwich Isaac in love as together with their greater eschatological son, they bask in the never-ending glory of the Lord, the Lord of life for the dead. Isaac rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. Even as he now possesses the full substance of the benediction he received and the benediction he pronounced, even as he now possesses the full evidence of the savory banquet, the savory banquet spread before his Lord, Isaac has sat down at table. Isaac has sat down at table with Jesus to sup forever and ever and ever.
that is benediction everlasting. Turning now to the third member of the patriarchal triumvirate. Seated alike, even now, in the kingdom of heaven, we come to Jacob. Jacob the heel grabber. Jacob the supplanter. Jacob the shyster, who steals his brother's birthright with a bowl of lentil stew. And then, do we have an instant replay here? Steals his brother's blessing with goat skins, goat meat, and the smell of his brother's very own clothes. And he does it in cahoots with his conniving mother. Jacob, who smells and feels like gotcha all over. Jacob and his accomplice mother succeed in deceiving near blind Isaac. But Esau is not fooled. No, Esau is not fooled. He's just cheated. And the twice-over-cheated older brother eyes his twin with a vow. He eyes him with a vow. I'll kill him. I'll kill him when that old man is in the grave. This dysfunctional family is unraveling right before the reader's eyes. But in most dysfunctional families, there's a mama's boy. And mama warns her favorite. Run for your life. Go visit your relatives. My brother, far away from here. Tell your father you're shopping. You're shopping for a wife. And get out of Dodge. Now the structure of the Jacob narrative in Genesis is framed by Bethel. Bethel, the gate of God, at chapter 28, verse 19 and Bethel, the gate of God, at chapter 35, verse 15. On the nether side of that gate, before the celestial ladder, the trickster, the deceiver, the liar. On the other side of that gate, after Peniel, a wrestler, a grappler, an entangler, and in the interval between. In the interval between Bethel and Bethel, the trickster tricked. The deceiver deceived, the liar lied to. On his first wedding night, the smell and the feel were not of Rachel. But he was in the dark, his eyes unable to see that it was Leah and not Rachel. And when his jealous multiple wives with their maidservants competed for sons, Jacob had his own dysfunctional family right down on the range. The Lord God tricking the trickster, snaring the deceiver in his own web of deceit and causing him to taste the bitter fruits of his own unbridled lusts. Laban. Dear Uncle Laban, shyster Uncle Laban, changes his wages three times, reducing him down, down, humiliatingly down, groveling down to the level of a serf, a slave, a lackey who serves him, Laban, free of charge. Wages, zilch. Pay, 
zero. Earnings, nada. Jacob the thief, robbed of his rages, robbed of his wife, robbed of family harmony with ten boys and one girl, two wives and two serving maid concubines. This is not a happy family photo. Jacob finally escapes from his uncle's snare and heads for home. Yet, though homeward bound, he is Jacob still. Still the deceiver, though chastened yet unaltered. Still the trickster, unchastened and untransformed. Jacob heads for home in character. The name he bears reveals his nature. Bears his name, carries his nature back, back to the land of Isaac and Abraham. Jacob comes to Canaan from Padan Aram, from the same region from which Abraham set forth for Canaan after God summoned him out of Ur of the Chaldees, from the same protological patriarchal jumping off point, Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham, Jacob sojourns toward the land of his fathers. But one night at the ford of the Jabbok, before he ventures to cross over Jordan, into the promised land, out of the darkness, a man blocks his way. In the pitch black Transjordanian night, a man stands between Jacob and the land of the promise. As if to keep him in the dark, the man wrestles with him, tangles with him, all night, grapples with him until break of day, entangles him in arms and legs to prevent his escape, but laying one finger, laying one lone finger on the socket of his thigh and wrenching his thigh out of joint, dislocating the leg of Jacob with but one bare touch, but a bare touch, and Jacob has a permanent dislocation, a perpetual limp, a visible hitch in his get-along until the day of his death. This Jacob, this dislocator, dislocated, this wrencher, wrenched, This trickster humbled. No trickery in this unnamed man who wrestles with Jacob. No trickery, only supernatural power, but a touch, and Jacob is out of joint, disjointed, crippled. Yet the cripple hangs on. The cripple hangs on to the crippler. 
the disjointed clings to the disjointer. The lame one holds fast to the one who made him lame. He strives. He wrestles. He grapples. He cries out, I will not let you go until you bless me. Bless me, I beg you, you limp causer, you disjointer, you dislocator, you who touched my thigh, touch my soul, touch my heart, touch my life with your blessing. Oh, unnamed wrestler, you have striven with me and humbled me, dislocated me, crippled me by that same almighty power, change me. Transform me, regenerate me, cripple this trickster's trickery, dislocate this deceiver's deception, lame this liar's lies. By your name, what is your name? By your name, O great and blessed name, subdue me, defeat my sinful nature, transform this Jacob Transform me into. And the unnamed man declared, You are transformed. Your heart has been changed. You no longer have the name of your old nature, Jacob, supplanter, trickster. You have been given a new name. A new name which describes your new nature. You are a prince with God. You are the Israel of God. You are one with whom God himself has wrestled and subdued to himself and blessed with heaven-sent blessings. For you, O Israel, have seen God face to face, and you, O Israel, have lived. You have wrestled with God and lived because God first wrestled with you and made you alive by his face to face grace. You will limp. You will limp every day of your life from henceforth to remind you that the grace of God wrestled you to benediction. The power of God wrestled you to submission. The love of God wrestled you to affection. The heaven-descended rebirth from God wrestled you to regeneration. The old man is dead, Jacob. Behold, a new man. The Israel of God has been brought forth. At Peniel, before the gate of God at Bethel, Jacob dies. Israel is born. Born by the touch of a man, this new Israel calls God face to face. Israel is now poised to cross over Jordan, to cross over Jordan now under the benediction of the face of God. And the Lord God made his face to shine upon Jacob, Israel, 
And into that tangled heart, into that deceptive heart, into that chastened, humbled, born-again heart came shalom. Shalom. No more striving with God. God has striven with you and has won. Israel can be Jacob. No more. And this Jacob, Israel, will bless his children at last, no longer dysfunctional, leaning upon his staff. His staff. Jacob's staff. The tool of a pilgrim. The rod of a stranger and sojourner. He leans upon his pilgrim staff and worships the God of Bethel's ladder, worships the God of Peniel's face-to-face encounter, worships the God of Bethel's stone pillar altar, worships the God who preserves his life by his descent into Egypt. And in that land, in that land of Egypt, Israel asks his son to place his hand under Jacob's thigh, his dislocated, dis jointed, lame and crippled thigh, to place his hand under the reminder of his disjointed, now transformed heart and nature, and promise, do not, do not bury me in Egypt. Do not bury me in Egypt, but carry me up out of Egypt to bury me in the land of my fathers, the land of Bethel, the land of the gate of God, the land into which I carried my new name because I had seen God face to face. In that land of my sojourn, my pilgrimage, bury me as I worship the Lord my God leaning upon my staff and possess the substance of a better land, a heavenly Canaan, that unseen land evidenced to me by that unnamed man, that land from which he came forth and that land to which At last, I follow him. I follow that unnamed man to journey's end. God's own face-to-face rest. God's land of everlasting rest. The protological Israel of God 
is the anticipation and projection of the eschatological Israel of God. And at Peniel, he possesses him because God face to face possessed Jacob and turned that liar into the Israel of God. The book of Genesis closes with Israel and Egypt. Sojourners from the land of promise, strangers and exiles in the land of Goshen, dwelling securely under the benediction of Egypt's Pharaoh and Israel's Joseph. The book of Exodus opens with Israel and Egypt, still sojourners from the land of promise, strangers and exiles in the land of Goshen, dwelling in bitter bondage under the malediction of Egypt's Pharaoh, who knows not Israel's Joseph. The hook pattern of narrative location Israel in Egypt binds Moses' first and second book. A seamless narrative thread, absent four centuries of silent, crochets the end of the patriarchal era and the inception of the Mosaic era. Joseph, the last of the former age, the forgotten Joseph, the beginning of the latter age. Joseph is not only forgotten, In the mind of imperial Egypt, his memory is virtually erased from the memory of his own father and brothers when he descends into Egypt. Joseph, the forerunner of Israel as a nation, tastes the abuse and abject slavery of Egypt centuries in advance of Egypt's brutal murder of Israel's firstborn sons. The death throes of Egyptian tyranny threaten Joseph even as they destroy the sons of Israel. But this son of Israel, beloved of his father Jacob, experiences the death threats of his very own brothers. Jacob's dysfunctional past has nurtured the inherent disposition and nature of sin In his older sons, Simeon and Levi, murderers and looters, Judah and Reuben, fornicators, the former a frequenter of prostitutes, the latter defiling his own father's concubine. But the lot of this ten-man fraternity hated their brother Joseph as a group, despised and abhorred him as a group. Joseph, beloved favorite of Jacob, because he was the firstborn of Rachel, Jacob's favorite beloved wife. Rachel, who poured out her life in her secondborn, Benjamin, Benjamin. Rachel, whom Jacob buried near Bethlehem. Bethlehem, where other sons of Israel would be buried in the face of the tyrannical and murderous rage of a king who knew not Jesus. 
that which designates Joseph for the murderous rage of his own, his own brothers, that which made Joseph the object of his own bloodline's rage was the mark his father placed upon him, the mark of his father's love, the robe of his father's love, the colorful robe marked him as beloved of his father, but hated by his brothers. And Joseph, marked by his robe of many colors, came to his own, and his own stripped him, stripped him of his many-colored robe, stripped him of the mark of his father's love, stripped him, and cast him down into a pit. Down in a pit, and down into Egypt, and down into prison, the trajectory of Joseph's life is the downgrade of hatred, humiliation, slavery, incarceration. And the price of this narrative degradation, 20 pieces of silver. His own brothers sell their very flesh and blood for the price of a slave. And into slavery, Joseph descends until God raises him up to Potiphar's house. But Potiphar's desperate housewife, predacious wife, lascivious wife, Potiphar's wife succeeds in putting Joseph down into prison at the command of her all too gullible husband. Joseph, Joseph's life is one put down after another. And in that prison pit, Joseph languishes until once again God raises him up, this time to the palace of Pharaoh. By the grace and wisdom of God, Joseph manages Egypt's grain supply in the face of a projected seven-year famine, which he prophetically foretells. And down into Egypt, look who is coming down now, down into Egypt, come the very brothers who had sent Joseph to the land of oblivion, even as they sought to blot him out of their own memory and the memory of their father. But God remembered Joseph, and God was with Joseph, Emmanuel-like, and God marked Joseph with his favor, a fine linen robe and a golden necklace around his neck. Joseph marked once more. But his brothers do not recognize the man behind the marks, even as they refuse to recognize the boy behind the mark of his father's robe. They are blinded by their jealousy on the one hand and their famished desperation on the other. Joseph passes among them and none of them dares lay a hand on him. And yet this one bone of their bone, flesh of their flesh, this one is the hidden mediator. He is the hidden mediator who will feed his brothers, save his people from starvation, and bless those who despitefully oppressed him with tears. With tears. As he fully, graciously, completely, lovingly forgives all their transgressions against him. And for the love he has for his father, he reunites father 
sons and family under the canopy of his own sufficiency. Joseph, the son of his father's love, despised and rejected by his brothers, stripped and sold like a common slave or a common criminal, bound in a prison house, Joseph is exalted by the Lord to sit at Pharaoh's right hand and to be the arbiter, yea, mediator of the preservation of the Israel of God. And at the end of his pilgrim life, He reveals the coming exodus of Israel from Egypt and entrusts his family to take up his bones, to take his body down at last in a land of milk and honey, to take it down at last into the land of promise, to take it over Jordan at last into a land of rest, a land of journey's end. Joseph rejoiced to see Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. Joseph's faith possesses the substance of an everlasting exodus from a land outside of God's everlasting rest, and Joseph's faith possesses the evidence of the as-yet-not-seen life pattern of the Lord Jesus, beloved of his father, despised by his brethren, stripped naked and sold as a common criminal or slave for 30 pieces of silver, cast into prison, nailed to a gibbet, but lives and reigns to be the mediator and forgiver of hateful brothers and dysfunctional family members who by his redeeming and regenerating grace are folded into the pilgrim family of God, a family united in eschatological hope, eschatological sight, eschatological faith through Joseph's greater son, Jesus Christ the Lord. The protological exodus anticipates the eschatological exodus in Joseph's eschatological faith. And that protological land where his bones may rest is a projection of that eschatological land where bones may be glorified in everlasting rest for the sons and daughters of the same eschatological faith that was graciously bestowed upon Joseph, son of Israel. Any questions or comments? We will finish the chapter next week. And the book by December 8th.